So we took up residence in an old palace that belonged to Saddam Hussein. Beautiful, beautiful buildings. A lot of them obviously damaged through bombing. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The only thing I was scared of was failing, was letting down the people there that I was supposed to support. Things went south really bad. You've got to have an element of crazy to be good at what we do. There was an ego attached to being a gun fighter. Being around big, tall trees, thick shrubbery, potentially connecting to other moments in his life during battle. The story of transformation is powerful. Kylie Graham served in the Australian Army for 16 years and is now going on 19 years with the Royal Australian Air Force and Air Reserves. During her full-time years in the Air Force, she deployed to Iraq. She's now a welfare officer and a psychologist. Kylie Graham, welcome to Life on the Line. Thanks, Alex. Thanks for having me. Tell me a bit about your childhood, Kylie. My father was in the Army, infantry soldier, joined at around the age of 25. So he joined a bit later in life during the time of the Vietnam War. So we moved around a lot as kids, all up and down the eastern seaboard from Townsville all the way down to Tasmania. Dad even had a posting down there. So lots of moves. I think I went to eight schools in 12 years. And I have a younger brother and sister who also obviously we all moved together. Spent all of our school holidays with our grandparents because my, both my parents were working. And yeah, it was a very mobile lifestyle. We never really lived in one place for more than two years or less, usually. We're a pretty tight-knit family, actually. Very tight-knit family. Lots of different schools, lots of different locations. Sometimes we went back to places again. Like we had two postings to Townsville, a couple of postings to Canberra. So yeah, a lot of moving around. So I take it then from the sounds of that, your father joins up voluntarily. He's not conscripted. Correct. That's right. Yeah. Can you tell me more about his Vietnam experiences? He went to Vietnam in 71. I was already born I, and had a young brother and my sister was born after he returned from Vietnam. But he was actually wounded in battle. He was the platoon medic. So as you can imagine, his role was quite challenging on a day-to-day basis. He would have seen a lot of quite horrific things during Vietnam as I said, wounded in battle, and he was awarded a military medal for bravery in the field, which came about from an incident where a booby trap had been set off, just off a path, actually. A lot of people were injured and the platoon commander was killed. So my father rendered first aid, even though he was injured himself, to members in the platoon, and he got the platoon back to base. Yeah, quite incredible action. And then he was returned back to Australia from there. Um, He continued to serve. He served for 20 years. A very senior soldier got to Warren Officer Class 1 and very well respected and highly regarded soldier. Very brave. I wonder what injuries did he walk away from in that battle physically and emotionally? Physically, his upper right arm was injured from memory. I don't remember anything too much more than that. It was a lot of shrapnel damage, really. Many ways, quite superficial From my recollection, anyway, I'm sure my mum would probably tell me something different. But certainly mentally, he still wears the scars. Diagnosed with PTSD after he got out of the army 
And, you know, he's been treated for that ever since, really. And, you know, I do remember growing up how difficult he was to be with and I didn't really realise until later on why that was and, you know, I realised that that was because of his experiences in Vietnam and it really changed him. And my mum said on many occasions how much, you know, he went to Vietnam one person and came back somebody else. The mental wounds were certainly much more significant than the physical but it's interesting you say that you grew up probably not really knowing any different about his personality from your perspective and also not knowing the cause of that personality change. So that wouldn't have had an impact on you joining up later. No, that's right. And it wasn't until I actually joined the service that I realised or had a better understanding of why he was the way he was. And so I joined the army in 1986. I was 18 years of age. I actually joined the army reserve before that uh, at 16, but went into full-time service, went to Duntroon, um, the Royal Military College in January 1986. And it was through that infantry corps training that I really got a sense of what it must have been like for him. So when we were doing, you know, defensive exercises or offensive exercises and just imagining what it would have been like for him in that environment, you know, when you're on picket in the middle of the night and, you know, we were in a fortunate situation. We knew that there was enemy out there, but there were, you know, it was a training activity. So you just kind of let your imagination run with you a little bit and you can really get the sense of the fear and just how horrific it must have been. So being me joining the military actually was helpful for me to understand what it would have been like for him and to appreciate the effect that it's had on him. But it wasn't his idea for me to join the army. That was my mum's idea. <laughs> Interesting. And yet she'd have a better perspective on the change in him. Tell me that timeline of you joining the reserves. Are you at school then when you join the reserves? Yeah, well, I was having a conversation with my mum. I was in year 11. We were just talking about well, what will I do when I finish school? And I said, oh, I'm not really sure. And she said, oh, why don't you join the army? And I said, well, I'm not really sure that joining the army is a good idea. You know, we've been moving around my whole life, losing all my friends every time we move. Why would I do that? And she said, well, you've never been in the army. How would you know if you'd like it or not? And that logic kind of works for me. So I thought, okay, that's fair enough. And she said, why don't you try the Army Reserve? Give it a go. If you like it, that's fantastic. If you don't, then you've got grounds for saying why you don't like. You can actually have some evidence behind you for that decision. Your mother's very logical. <laughs> She's very logical. I think she knew me better than I knew myself at that age, definitely. And I think she knew that I would appreciate the challenge. So, yeah, I joined the Army Reserves. I went into Signals Corps, did my initial recruit training at Ingleburn in Sydney. This is a very long time ago. 1983, this was. And... Yeah, it was very challenging. Of course, I was 16, didn't really know much about anything. I got into trouble a lot because I used to ask why all the time. The corporals used to really, I really used to annoy them <laughs> because I wanted to know why I had to do all these things that they were telling me to do. Oh, that's not going to go down well. Yeah. I know. I know it was a disaster. But I, you know, I made it through the, the training. It was quite incredible. Yeah, I really loved the challenge. We had all female sections at that time. There was not um, as much integration as there is now yeah it was just an amazing experience and then because we were living in Canberra at the time my mother suggested well why don't you try for Duntroon because there was the change from Portsea and RMC up until 1986 was a male-only 
officer training establishment. And so there was ADFA, the Australian Defence Force Academy, had been created and RMC had changed into an 18-month course and they were bringing women into the training environment as well as at ADFA they're doing the same thing. So that all changed in January 86. So I'd finished school at the end of 84 and, again, this conversation came up about trying for RMC and I thought, there's no way that I'm going to get in, but I'll do it for mum, you know, if I'm just do it to keep her happy kind of thing. I didn't really think that it was a realistic option. And my dad didn't think that I would get in either. Went through the application process. I finished school at the end of 84. I was um, 17 years of age, but I went overseas for a gap year. Christmas was getting close and I thought, oh, you know, I'm obviously not going to get in. Hadn't heard anything. So my next plan was to go to university and do a psych degree or go to Sydney and join a nanny school and become a professional nanny and travel the world. That was my other option. Anyway, I finally got a letter to say, you've been accepted, be here in Sydney for the swearing. And that was in January and started on the 15th of January, 1986, with the first intake of women to Royal Military College. That would have been quite an interesting time to go to RMC Duntroon. As you say, it's that first time they're opening up to females in the class of 86. What was that like? I imagine you were quite a minority presence there as well. Yeah, definitely quite the minority. I can't remember exactly how many we started with, but our class graduated 18 months later, June 1987, with a class of 121 and there were nine females. The class below us actually graduated a little bit less, I think, but they only had four women graduate. So the numbers were quite low. Was there a higher dropout rate of women? Yeah, there was. Yeah, as I said, I can't remember the exact number, but um, I would guess around 25, 30 we would have started with. But, yeah, we did drop down to, to nine of us who graduated. So, yeah, it was, but, I mean, there were guys who didn't make it through either, of course. It's, it's a tough course. It's set to challenge you. I mean, obviously there's a lot of teaching and learning, but it's hard. And you're really put under the pump physically and mentally and emotionally the whole time. And 18 months is a really long time. I was 18 years of age and I, even though I'd done a little bit of travel, I was quite naive and I was very fortunate that I had a lot of classmates who were ex-serving soldiers. So they kind of took me under their wing a little bit and um, particularly when we were at Bush would help me with what they knew. So I really was very fortunate that way. And what I didn't realise until a bit later on was that the adjutant at that time was also, he was a captain who'd served with my dad. And so even though I didn't know it, he had been keeping an eye out in the background to sort of say, not that I think he could have done too much it was really up to you to put in and perform but yeah it was hard every day was difficult and I know that without my parents support I probably would have struggled from an emotional perspective it was really really hard. Moving on from RMC tell me about your time in the army because we're going to talk a bit more about your air force service in particular but before we get to that and your transition to the sky Talk me about more on your time on the ground. Do you stick with Signals Corps? No, actually, when I graduated from RMC, I actually went into Army Aviation, which was quite a surprise to a lot of people, I think. Uh, as an air traffic controller, so I went to SAIL and started the air traffic control course. I was the only Army person on the course and there were only two, well, I was the only officer and there was two midshipmen who had technically officers as well. But a very small course and quite a challenging intellectually challenging career path and quite a narrow career path as well if you to be an air traffic controller. I really enjoyed it but it was not actually something I wanted to do long term. I realised after spending 18 months at Duntroon learning how to be an infantry platoon commander which is what you basically are taught to do over that 18 month period that I actually wanted to be with people. I wanted to lead people rather than 
telling aircraft or pilots where to go in the sky kind of thing. I couldn't really envisage a longer-term career that way. So I asked if I could be pulled off course and I trans transferred to the Ordnance Corps and I served the rest of my time in Army in Ordnance Corps. So Kylie, tell me a bit more about your time in Ordnance Corps and then how you find yourself starting to look to the Air Force. Probably one of the biggest challenges about being in the Army at that time was because we were the first women who were coming out of RMC under this new training regime, we were really leading the way in a lot of areas. So I found myself in Townsville at was Two Field Supply Battalion back then as one of the first women in what we call combat-related roles. So women were really starting to move into areas where we hadn't served before. So that was quite challenging, being a senior female. I was captain at that time in a obviously predominantly male unit with a few females, you know, scattered around. But we were really the first women to start to be in the combat-related area. So we were providing support to Laverack Barracks, to all of the units within in Townsville. And also um, we, there's a RAF base up there as well and some Army Aviation unit there. So we were providing logistic support to those units. And, of course, when I was there in 92, 93, 94, that was when the operational tempo started to increase significantly for Army and for the ADF. So we had Somalia, Rwanda, not necessarily in this order, so apologies if I get this wrong, but Somalia, Rwanda, Cambodia, Bougainville. But that was really when things were really starting to, to ramp up. So we were providing support to units that were rotating in and rotating out of operational areas. Initially, a lot of peacekeeping, but obviously, as we all know, that's really changed over time. Then Air Force. So after three years in Townsville, moved to Canberra, and then I had another posting at Aubrey-Wodonga. But as while I was in Canberra, I was working at the Australian Defence College. It was the inaugural year of the combination of the three services coming together to do their command and staff college course in Canberra. So the three services got together and they had this one training course for, for 12 months, which is the course that you must do. It's a prerequisite for Army anyway, to be promoted beyond major. So I was a major at the time and I was the staff officer to the inaugural COM 80C, Commander Australian Defence College. There's also what we call the, the Colonel's course. If you're going to do that CDSS, so the Centre for Defence and Strategic Studies. You would do that course if you're then potentially going to be promoted beyond colonel, full colonel. There was a senior officer there who invited me to join the Air Force. <laughs> he said, we have been through, prior to that, a number of commercialisation and civilianisation programs where a lot of Air Force's middle management level and the corporate knowledge at that squadron leader, even senior flight lieutenant level, had been stripped because there'd been so much civilianisation. And he'd said to me, oh, we really need someone like you who's got this experience come across to Air Force. I was pregnant, actually, at the time with my third child, my third boy. And I thought, oh, I'm not really sure if this is the right path for me. I mean, why would I change now? But I was at a point where if I'd continued with Army, I would probably never have an opportunity to be promoted beyond major because of the requirements at the time that you had to do command staff course prior to promotion. That was a prerequisite for promotion beyond major. And by the time I'd finished raising this baby, having this baby, and I was ready to do that course, I'd be outside that window for selection. So the Air Force was offering to me an opportunity for promotion down the track and, you know, a different kind of focus, which is more administrative and personnel rather than logistics, which is what I was doing, even though I was in a staff officer role at that time. 
So it took him a few months to convince me, but once he convinced me, I thought, okay, I'm going to give this a go. And yeah, I mean, one day on the Friday, I was in my maternity, army maternity uniform. And on the Monday, I was in my Air Force maternity uniform and I was still in the same role. I didn't lose any seniority and it was the beginning of the rest of my career, really, in personnel administration. So I became an admino, um, which is now known as a PCO, a personnel capability officer. Um, most of that time I've spent in Melbourne, actually. Yeah, it's been 19 years now. It was a good move. What's your memory of 9-11, Kylie? Oh, gosh. I remember being quite dumbfounded by what was occurring. I actually remember watching it on TV thinking it was actually a movie. I think a lot of people have that recollection. They found that whole situation just unbelievable and I was sure I was watching a movie. I really couldn't believe it. But when it really became apparent that this was really happening, it just became even even more unbelievable and it really did change a lot of things certainly for the Australian Defence Force and people, you know, the community, it really did make a big change to our lives. Australia is part of the Coalition of the Willing that invades Iraq in 2003. And you're there almost from the start, I believe. Yes, that's right. So I was the executive officer, or the 2IC if you like, of the officer training school, Air Force Officer Training School, which is in Point Cook. Uh, in Melbourne. And there was actually a request that had gone out looking for people to fill a position with Joint Task Force 633, it was at the time. It had a certain set criteria. And I remember reading the signal thinking, oh, I actually fit that criteria. I'll put my hat in the ring and see, you know, if an opportunity rises, then I'll then I'll put my hand up. Because, you know, we all train and learn and become professionals to serve our country. That's why we do what we do. So when an opportunity like that comes up, yeah, I put my hat in the ring. I actually didn't think that um, I would be selected, but I was selected. And from the day I was advised that, yes, you're the right person to fill this role, to the time I left was actually two weeks. And it was over Easter, actually. It was over the Easter standout period and holiday period. So I had a lot to do in a very short space of time. I had three small children under the age of five. And, you know, my husband at the time was serving. So we had a lot of conversation around that as well. How can we make that work as best as possible? But of course, my focus was also getting ready, handing over my role at the school and um, making my way to Qatar is where we started initially. And so, yeah, that was in early 2003. So in April, I left and arrived there in early May. It's a four and a half month deployment and you're deployed in the role of admino at the time. Tell me more a bit of what your day-to-day entails. We had daily briefings every morning, and that was about keeping the commander of the task force and all of the uh, officers as well, personnel in the headquarters, informed about what was going on in the area of operations. So it was a, a daily task in the morning. So for me personally, that I was the J10. So my responsibility was to keep the commander informed about where all personnel were at any one time over the area of operations. So Australian personnel. So if there was a skirmish in a particular area, I would be asked, do we have troops in that particular area? And if so, what do we know about them? The challenge with that role was that sometimes we had Australians who would be, say, posted to the UK, for example, and then with the unit they were serving within the UK would be then put into theatre. So we would not necessarily know that. So that was one challenge with that particular role. Fortunately, for the period of time that I was there, we had a really tight rein on who was in country but it was a very challenging time for everybody the other part of that role was around 
the people who were there in the headquarters, so it was the Australian headquarters, who was doing what role, what position, and who was coming in to replace them and were they the right person for that role and the actual exit of the person who was in that role. So that transition from one member to a new member and the timing of that and then the logistic support with all of that as well. So my main role was managing who was coming in and who was leaving and when so that we still always had a good footprint on the floor at any one time. Our days were long. We initially, as I said, were in Qatar, which was very, was a bit more benign in that we were living in ISO containers, which were quite comfortable, although it was very hot. But the days were still long and still getting an understanding of how things worked and getting comfortable with what was expected of the commander and who we were working with, with CENTCOM, so Central Command, which the American headquarters, or not just the American, the other command forces that were coalition forces, I beg your pardon, who were working there at the same time. So getting to know who your counterpart was, was also part of that process. Then CENTCOM, Central Command, moved forward to Baghdad. So obviously we're part of that team, so we moved forward to Baghdad as well. So we took up residence in an old palace that belonged to Saddam Hussein. It was quite incredible. It's like a marble jungle, really. Lots of buildings, beautiful, beautiful buildings. A lot of them obviously damaged through bombing. We had a massive lake in the middle, which had a lot of unexploded ordnance in it, but quite deep, quite big, and a fantastic sort of track that went around, or it was a road actually, that went all the way around the perimeter, which, you know, we used as a running track many times. I think it was probably about 4Ks all the way around. So quite a big site. Someone will correct me on that. I'll probably say it was a different, but I, I don't actually remember what the kilometres were. When we moved to Baghdad, we had a lot of issues with basic things like water supply, sewerage, electricity, because it had been bombed. So there was a lot of work that had to be done by our organisation and other armies to help get that back up running again. So we didn't have air conditioning for quite some time and it, it, was, it was in the middle of summer. So it was very, very hot, often dripping on top of your keyboard. It was a unsecure place initially, but then became quite secure, even though our boundary was, we had to be monitoring our boundary at all times. We had an ammunition cache on our, what we called Australia Island, which was, it was basically a little mini house, but in a tower format. So there was like four levels. That's where we slept, but we worked in the main building, if you like, which again, as I said, was predominantly marble. Almost every building was just this marble, incredible architecture. It was just incredible, absolutely incredible. We would do picket at night. We had double stagger picket that would be shared in the usual roster process. But there was a lot of time spent getting to know the area of operations and who was where and what was happening in all different locations. So, yeah, the days were long. We didn't have a lot of time off. So we would probably be in the office, so to speak, by about 8 o'clock in the morning and we'd probably finish around 11 o'clock at night or maybe 7 o'clock till 11 o'clock. So, yeah, quite long days. By the time I got home, I was ready for a little bit of a break. <laughs> You're quite work-focused in your description there, but I imagine it was just surreal being in that country and in what is a war zone. Absolutely, it was quite surreal. And definitely you do focus on the work and the job that has to be done. I became the resident hairdresser at the time for a lot of the, the guys especially. I'd cut my young boy's hair a few times, so I was given the clippers and that was kind of my job because we didn't have anyone to do it and it was just always easier for somebody else to do it. So that was one thing that happened which was quite, quite fun and it enabled me to get to know a lot of people a bit more on a personal level rather than just that work and operational focus. 
During the time that I was there, Uday and Kuze, who were Saddam Hussein's sons, were killed in a skirmish. They were actually, my understanding is they were in the process of being captured. They'd been found, but they were killed during that skirmish. And then in the Dece- I left in the August, and in the December, that was the year that um, Saddam Hussein was found and captured and obviously taken to prison, and everyone knows the rest of that story. But, yeah, it was very, I think surreal is probably the best word to describe it. I really struggled with missing my children because they were so young. Professionally, I reveled in it. Professionally, it was such a wonderful challenge. And to be working so closely with your colleagues, a lot of them actually army and predominantly army because it was a land-based operation predominantly, certainly from the headquarters perspective, you know, Air Force and Navy had their roles to play as well. But we were just very focused on this land operation So I had a lot of the colleagues I was working with knew me from my time in army logistics. So that actually helped a lot with the relationships in the headquarters. As those months roll on, are there any particular moments that stand out to your memory, either a funny moment or particularly bizarre moment or something you look back on later and reflect on more? On the one occasion, I went into Baghdad, right in the centre of the city. We had a a security detachment in the city and I went there a couple of times with some of the other headquarters staff. So travelling from where we were located into the centre of Baghdad with an escort at the front and the rear, quite that sense of alertness and awareness is exponential. So you really get that sense of hypervigilance that a lot of people still carry with them when they return from service. So you really got that sense of being super aware of everything that's going on around you. But you really, because of your training, you're just in this automatic mode of how to respond given the situation. We got safely into the centre of the city to visit the security detachment who were there. And I met an Iraqi man. And even though I didn't speak any Arabic, very, very little, and he didn't speak a lot of English, we managed to have this fantastic conversation. And he was telling me about how appreciative he was that the Australians were there and supporting the people. And that really meant a lot to me. He also told me that he had three sons. So that was something else for us to sort of talk about. And I have three sons as well in our broken conversation. But we managed to just have this lovely rapport that happened very, very quickly in a very, very short space of time. And it was a really lovely moment. And it really helped me appreciate, from my perspective, why we were there. And that the local people were appreciating what we were doing and why we were there. And how was that reunion with your sons when you finally returned home? Oh, dear, I don't even know if I can talk about it now. (laughs) It was such a long time ago, I know, but I cried. I think I, yeah, didn't stop crying for a long time. And then in 2006, Kylie, you're off to London. Yes, so my husband was posted to Ministry of Defence and... I actually temporary, well, it was called temporary home located work at that time, but flexible work, basically working with the Australian High Commission. I was working to help with lateral transfers. So people who were serving in the British services who wanted to transfer to the Australian services. So um, I was helping facilitate that. And then whilst I was there, I did that for a while. And then I ended up doing some civilian work, working for a charity and also working for the Institute of Cancer Research doing similar roles like a staff officer would, so like a PA slash EA to scientists who were working on cures for cancer, disease, all sorts of things. But it was the Institute of Cancer Research, so cancer was the focus. An incredible experience, a very multicultural company and incredible people with an incredible work ethic. So it was a really nice taste of civilian life 
And yeah, I ran the London Marathon raising money for the Institute of Cancer Research at that time. So that was quite an experience and then moved into working for a charity in a similar kind of role. And again, a wonderful experience. So yeah, living in London was quite fantastic. Tell me about your role in the Air Force, Kylie, until 2011. And then what makes you decide to leave full time and go to the reserves? Okay, so I returned back early 2008. We came back to Melbourne, so we came back to our own home. And I think I felt quite unsettled. Like, is this really my future for the rest of my career? Like, is is this what I want to keep doing? Because I was in a headquarters and I guess maybe there wasn't as much job satisfaction for me at that time. So I was looking further for what am I going to do for my next career? That was my thought. And I remembered that I always wanted my initial thought was to be a psychologist. I wanted to go to university and do psychology. So in 2009, I applied to Melbourne University to do a a graduate diploma in psychology. I already had a degree, a Bachelor of Social Science in Human Resource Management. So I needed to do 10 subjects because they weren't predominantly psychology subjects. So I started university. I was working full-time and studying part-time. So I did that for two years, finished my graduate diploma, and I really, really loved the subjects. Like I really, there wasn't a subject that I thought, oh, this is boring. It really meant something to me, and I felt this is something that I could pursue. I decided in 2011, that's right, that I would transfer to the reserves so that I could do a year of full-time study, which was the postgraduate diploma in psychology. And I went to Swinburne University. I did some reserve time during that year, but it's a pretty heavy year because you're writing a a thesis plus doing some pretty heavy subjects. So it was a very full-on year. Still raising three sons as well. Yeah, still raising three amazing kids and a partner you know at the time who traveled a lot with his work so it had its challenges definitely but I was very passionate about it and still am so I was really determined to continue so consequently after finishing my postgraduate diploma in psychology at the end of 2011 I applied to do my master's at Swinburne and was successful to commence that and they only offered it part-time which actually worked out well for me so it was a four-year course part-time and I did reserve work part-time as well. Tell me more Kylie about finishing your studies and then beginning a private practice. Yeah so I was very fortunate during my master's to have some paid placements where I was working for a couple of companies who gave me some fantastic experience The work that I was doing was credited towards my master's, but it was also an opportunity to be doing paid work because when you're doing those placements during university, nursing or medical, you're normally not paid. So I was in a really, really fortunate situation. But there were great opportunities to learn about being a psychologist out there in the big world. So, And that's really what I was aiming for. That's what I wanted to do. So I finished, finally finished my studies in 2018. So it took me a couple of years longer than I planned, but I forgive myself for that. (laughs) I did want to finish in the minimum amount of time, but life kind of got in the way a little bit. Yeah, so I finished and became a fully registered psychologist last year. One of the companies that I had done a placement with had offered me, said to me, at any time you want to come back, come back. And that was in a forensic role. Uh, So it's working with, people who are either on parole 
or under a community corrections order or even minimum security prison. So it was counselling people who have drug and alcohol issues. So their crime is related to or their addiction is and has impacted their life so much that they're now involved in a criminal activity in some way. So as part of their corrections order or part of their parole conditions, they're required to attend counselling and that's when they come and see someone like me. So that was really interesting meeting a different part of the community that I really never had much engagement with before. A very steep learning curve, very steep learning curve as a new clinician. So quite exciting. And so, yeah, I did a few different things in that the psych space finally became fully registered in early 2019. And then halfway through the year, uh, an opportunity came up to work in a private practice with another clinician. It's her practice. And so now I work there two days a week and three days a week I do my Air Force Reserve work. Does your new professional knowledge give you a new perspective on members past and present of the military, the psychology of veterans returning home? There's a lot of discussion in the media and other outlets about that kind of thing. And we've seen a long period of active overseas service. And I imagine you'd have quite a different perspective on all this than you would have, say, in 2003 when you were on the front line yourself. Having an understanding of post-traumatic stress disorder the clinical presentation, it does give you a greater depth of understanding. You know, I'm fortunate to have been in a position to be on the other side of the fence as well. But also in many ways, you know, I'm the daughter of a veteran. My partner was a veteran. My eldest son is now a veteran. You know, um, he's in the army. He served in Iraq himself. And of course, my own experience. So all those different perspectives and then combining that with the theoretical part of it really gives you a whole picture and also gives you a lot of empathy and I guess compassion as well for the people who are sitting in front of you experiencing the symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder in particular or depression or anxiety or suicidal ideation that sometimes comes with that transitioning back into either military life back here in Australia after deployment or transitioning to civilian life after being the military being your whole life. And as we know, it doesn't always present or these symptoms don't always present straight away. They can often present a bit further down the track. I guess the fortunate thing for me is I'm in a position where I can understand the language, the culture of the military. So I think that really helps when people are sitting in front of me and sharing with me their story and their experience that they can use as many acronyms as they like. I'll probably know most of them, not all of them. We have so many. But I think that it really does put me in a unique position that way. And it is part of the reason why I'm doing what I'm doing, because I want to work with veterans. And I that is my ultimate aim, is to continue to work with it, not exclusively, but certainly give back to my community. I feel that being an army brat, growing up you know, with a serving father who experienced what he experienced, joining the army myself, it's been my whole life. And... This, I feel like, is my chance to give back to my community and my community is the military. And I feel really fortunate to have been able to do that. And you mentioned there that your son, one of your sons is now a veteran. How did you feel when he first brought up, Mum, I want to join up? (laughs) He's wanted to do that since he was 10 years old. So (laughs) he really had that planted in his mind. He wanted to be like his grandfather. He said, I want to be a soldier. I don't want to be an officer. I don't know if you need to bleep this out or not, but he said, I want to kick down doors and blow shit up. (laughs) 
you know, his father and I tried to sort of explain to him, it's not all about that. But as you can imagine, he was very determined that he wanted to do that. So he finished year 12 and applied to join the army and he was successful. I marched out of Kapuka and then obviously went to Singleton to School of Infantry and then was posted to Darwin. And whilst he was in Darwin, he deployed to Iraq. Did he kick down any doors and blow shit up? Probably. Will he tell his mother? Probably not. I don't think that we ever tried to sway him not to. I mean, having a career in the military is a fantastic thing. It presents you with so many opportunities. And I think we're more trying to encourage him to maybe try for RMC or ADVO because we felt that it would employ more. He has a natural leadership style and leadership traits, which we felt that would be harnessed by attending either RMC or ADVO. But, you know, he chose not to do that. And he's still a great leader, even as a soldier. He has been put into roles where he... He has been a section commander, for example, on exercises and so on. And and I'm sure that um, he's had an opportunity to see that leadership come through. And neither of my other two, my my second son thought about that for a while, but doing an apprenticeship now and and loving that. My youngest son, however, is uh, doing a degree in IT and his desire is to be a cyber analyst, work in cybersecurity and defence in the future, a civilian in (laughs) defence. And Kylie, what are you doing in the Air Force Reserves today and what does the future hold there for you? Uh, So I'm currently a welfare officer at the Victoria Barracks in Melbourne, working predominantly with Army actually, and the role is mainly supporting people who have been medically downgraded for physical health or mental health reasons or a combination of the two. And I absolutely love it. It's such an opportunity to help people who are currently serving and support them either through becoming upgraded or transitioning out of service if that's what Army or Air Force decide is the next step, or if they volunteer themselves and say, yeah, it's ready, it's a time for me to transition, and they might transition under a, a medical discharge situation. So supporting them through that is extremely rewarding, and it dovetails really nicely with my psych work in the civilian world. So it's kind of an extra opportunity to work with veterans they are just currently serving and supporting them through that transition process. As I said, I hope that my future continuing to support serving members, retired members, because that's what's really important to me is to be able to use this knowledge that I've gained, plus the experience that I have from my service and blend those two together. I have been asked why I'm not a psychologist in uniform. It just hasn't happened that way. But I think what this means is that I can continue work in this space post taking my uniform off. I'm probably going to be in uniform for a little bit longer, at least another year or two. And then my plan is then transition to full-time psychology. So I'm looking forward to that. Well, Kylie, it's decades of service just on your part, not to mention the stories of your father and your son that you shared with me today. It's a lot of service you're giving back to the military community, which I know is an ongoing goal for you. So thank you for your service and for your time today. Thanks very much, Alex. It was a pleasure. Subscribe in your podcast app, on YouTube, or on our website to never miss an episode. Find out more about this show at www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. You can follow us on social media at Life on the Line Podcast on Instagram and Facebook, and at LOTL Pod on Twitter. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design, music by Dan Van Workhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget. <laughs>